forgive the interruption, but I believe this requires your attention. Meanwhile, at the above-ground underwater suborbital volcano lair... This is urgent. We need a response team. We're already putting together the best man. With all due respect, sir, so am I. I have a plan. <laughs> it's real! Mighty Marvel Geeks. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Team? No, no, no. We're a chemical mixture that makes chaos. We're, we're a time bomb. Well then, son, you've got a condition. Your show about all things Marvel with Mike, Kylan, and Eric. What a bunch of losers. I am Groot. That I did know. These people may be isolated and unbalanced even, but I believe with the right push, it can be exactly what you need. And suit up. I'm bringing the party to you. I have indeed been uploaded, gentlemen, online and ready. And welcome to another issue of Mighty Marvel Geeks. It is the Intrepid Trio minus one. It's that silly common core stuff again. Uh, it is Eric and Mike to start the show. Kylan is coming on after he's done showing off the Hellabus to, to Natasha, Black Widow herself. Um which I don't know how he keeps doing that, Eric. I just want to know how he got tickets to the premiere and we did. I don't think it was to the premiere. I think it was to the preview of the Black Widow movie. It is Thursday. They do the sneak, the early release. Forgive the interruption. This might be important. Uh, Looking at what Thursday's put on my screen. Uh, Eric, I got a surprise for you. Do you have a surprise for me? Yeah. Let's go back to um, 1977. Okay. I know that's... Ages ago. I vaguely remember 1977. Uh, do you remember? I believe the show was on CBS. Uh, you remember The Amazing Spider-Man? When we get to see a actual Marvel character leap off the comics and appear on screen? Uh, well, that is one of the few memories I have from that year because I actually watched that show religiously. Well, if I told you on air with us tonight is Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man himself, a.k.a. Frederick Von Tramp from The Sound of Music, or Von Trapp. I'm so sorry on that. And Robert from The Lord of the Flies, which is a, I don't know how many times I saw that in school. And that chuckle right there is Mr. Nicholas Hammond himself. Welcome, <laughs> sir, to the show. Thank you very, very much, Mike and Eric. It's really a pleasure to be here. I know officially you are considered the second live action Spider-Man. There was the the dancer on Electric Company that kind of beat you by three years. But you're the first one to really have lines oh, on yeah. on screen. And, and you're the, you're the Spider-Man <laughs> that really makes the impression. Yeah. But well, thank you. I think when we were doing it at CBS, I think we did consider that this was the first time that um, the character was going to be played by a, by an actor yeah. uh, and not an animated figure. And as you say, um, that there would be storylines and scenes with other actors and that it would hopefully stand on its own as a primetime CBS yeah. series um, uh, and didn't just entirely rely on effects, although uh, obviously all the Spider-Man stuff was huge fun and, and very well right. done, I think, uh, given, given the circumstances of the time. Well, I, I will say, though, 
while you may be quote unquote the second live action Spider-Man, you are the first Spider-Man with a show and actually first Marvel character with a show um, in in the modern time. I mean, I know Captain America had a, had the movie serials back in the forties and so did Batman, but I mean, to have an actual show, you're the first Marvel character or you're the first person to play a Marvel character on screen in a a, a series. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And of course, at the time, uh, we had no idea that it would it would spawn this, you know, this franchise, this industry, which has grown and grown and grown and grown. And, you know, with these extraordinary films now that Sony does of Spider-Man. And and I I think we're all quite proud of the fact that we we managed to um, give birth to this baby. (laughs) So let's back up a little bit before that. Um, How did you get into acting to begin with? Well, um, as you just heard, Eric, I might say, you know, Eric, um, I was in Lord of the Flies. That was the first uh, film role I'd ever played. I'd done a bit of, uh, um, you know, school plays and things like that. But um, I was just very lucky. I wanted to do it. I'd always, it was something I'd always wanted to do. My mom had been an actress. And I always thought as a little kid, when I would hear her stories about what it was like to be in movies and be in theater, it always sounded like a lot of fun to me. So when I got an opportunity to audition for Lord of the Flies, of course, I grabbed it with both hands. And um, I was really lucky that um, the great, great Peter Brook, who directed the film, you know, cast me as one of the as one of the boys on the island. And um, unbeknownst to me, when we finished the film, which was huge fun, I mean, for us, I know the film is kind of terrifying, but to us, we were 30 kids without our parents let loose on a Caribbean island for 10 weeks. <laughs> so for us, the whole thing was like, it was like being at the best summer camp in the world. Um, but when it was over, and I think I thought, well, that was really fun, and I'm going back to school now. I guess I was, I just turned 11. What I didn't realize was there was a play being done on Broadway in which they needed an 11-year-old boy and to play the son of the lead, who is a famous English actor, uh, Sir Michael Redgrave. And um, oh. they've been looking, they've been looking all summer to try to find a boy, and they hadn't found one. So the producer of the play called up Peter Brook, who just directed Lord of the Flies, and said, hey, you've just worked with 30 of them. Who do you recommend? And I think he recommended three of us from the film. And we all went in and we all auditioned and I got the part. So suddenly within six months, I'd, I'd, I'd been in a major movie and I was in a play on Broadway. And so then I just signed with the William Morris Agency and I've been doing it ever since. What? So it wasn't a, a kind of it wasn't a kind of thing where I kind of like had to, you know, go to audition after audition after audition to get my first little tiny break. I was very lucky. I was very lucky. Uh, the first two things I tried out for, I got. And that kind of started the ball rolling. What was the play on Broadway? The play was called The Complacent Lover, and it was a play by an English, actually he's a thriller writer named Graham Greene, and it was one of the first plays he'd ever written. And it was, a, I mean, at at 11, I didn't really understand all the the layers of the play, but it was was a great role that I had, and... um, and I love doing it. And again, so I was suddenly I was with a bunch of grown up actors. Um, there were, in fact, here's, here's a trivia bit. There were three of us in the play where it was our first job ever. 
Gene Wilder, Sandy Dennis, and me. Oh, and wow. For all three of us, that was the first, and you know, and Gene and Sandy, Sandy was about 23, Gene was about 30, and Gene had worked as an actor, but he'd never been on a Broadway show before. So, you know, so uh, we all felt very lucky to be in it, but it was a great group. And again, it just reconfirmed for me that I can't think of a better way of, of passing my uh my time and and profession to be in. And I I have to say, I feel that way to this day. Yeah. Well, I I will say when, when I heard hunger games was coming out and then I heard, Oh, it's, it's a, it's almost a, a, um, a clone of a Japanese film called battle Royale. I'm like, yeah, well, both of these stories are is Lord of the flies. And that movie was just as impactful, if not more than what, either of these two films will ever be. Um, I know I have, whenever in high school, we had to read the book. Actually in middle school, we always, we read the book first, then we watched the movie. And I was impressed with just how close that movie sticks to the book. Um, I I was, I was very impressed with that at the time. I was like, okay. So we, we were able to almost go through the book and go, yep, this is going to happen next. And it was just right there. No sequence change. So you go from, yeah, uh, you go to yeah, Lord of the Flies. They, they were pretty good that way. I think they did. They, so you go from Lord of the Flies to some small independent film yeah. with uh, some unknown actress, uh, mm-hmm. Sandy something, uh, Sandy Duncan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll come back to this little mm-hmm. independent film. That got minimal viewings. And you end up as, <laughs> how, how did the Spider-Man project come about? Well, again, it, you know, I mean, I think that's just the story of, of show business. It, it, uh, it was totally out of left field. I, I had no idea that CBS was planning a, to do, to, to do as you say, the first live action Marvel series. And of course, I think for them, they felt it was a huge gamble because it had never been done before. And I think the impression they thought that was in most people's minds was kind of like of you know, the um, the Batman series, which had basically right. been a comedy and it kind of and it kind of made fun of the whole genre and uh, done it as a spoof. And they did not want to do that. They wanted to do something where people actually got involved in the story dramatically. And unbeknownst to me, I was doing a play. I was living in L.A. I've been living there for some time and I'd done an awful lot of TV at that point and and films. And I was doing a play in L.A. um, at the Santa Theatre Group. Weirdly enough, um, it was a play by an English playwright, Tom Stoppard. And somebody from CBS saw me in it and they called me in and we talked about it. And then they had me go meet the network heads and then the producers. And basically, I said to them, I said, listen, guys, you know, if what you're trying to do is, you know, if you want like a muscle man, like a like, you know, no disrespect, but like Lou Ferrigno, I'm not your guy because I'm never going to be that guy. But if you want somebody who can play someone who can convince the audience that he's a real person and, you know, not a not a cartoon character, I said that would be really interesting that I would really like to, to have a shot at. So I got the job because that is exactly what they wanted. 
And I remember thinking when I was watching the show is kind of like, this is a real person. I mean, because I grew up on Spider-Man comics and with the Electric Company. And yes, he was a comic book character. And even in the Electric Company, he was played as a comic book character. Yeah. Who never <clears throat> just threw his head up and boom, there was a uh, there was a word balloon. But this was the first time <clears throat> had seen a Marvel character presented as a real person. And I think that's part of what what really stuck with me over the years. Well, I, I I'm curious. I think I think I think it's what stuck with everybody, frankly, Eric. Were you were you a fan of the Spider-Man comic before you you went to talk about this? I was I had been a fan of comics, particularly when I was a kid, you know, but I, I'm, I'm not going to lie and say that I had specifically focused on Spider-Man. Sure, I was well aware of who he was, and I was kind of aware of the whole concept of being bitten by a radioactive spider, and that's what gave him his powers, just as I was aware of the fact that, you know, Superman and the Kryptonite and, you know, other, other um, superheroes and how they achieve their powers. Um, I knew far less about the character, let's put it this way, than a lot of other people did who yeah. were genuine, devoted fans. And it wasn't until I met Stan Lee and had a chance to talk to Stan that I really understood the whole basis of Peter Parker. Okay. Well, I, the reason why I ask is, you know, you, you made the comment, uh, if you're looking for someone to be a muscle guy like Lou Ferrigno, I'm not your guy. Well, if they're looking for someone like Lou Ferrigno to be Spider-Man, well, that's not the Spider-Man we need. Because Peter Parker no, wasn't exactly. that guy. I mean, and I, I wasn't drawn that way. That's right. Until what? Maybe the late '80s, early '90s, when you know, superheroes had to be a little stockier. Yeah. But even then, he he's still on the skinnier side of bulk. Um, I I yeah. personally I mean, enjoyed your performance. He wasn't even as bulked up as as Clark Kent. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, as I say, all I all I could do was try to make him as real as possible. In fact, I used to say sometimes to the producers, I'd say, "Well, I feel I've got I've done my job." If halfway through the show they forget they're watching a show about a superhero, and they just get involved in the story of a kid who's a college kid who has a part-time job as a photographer at a newspaper. And if they can actually start to buy into that belief, then I feel I've done my half, you know, and then the stunts and the Superman and the Spider-Man stuff, that does its bit. But I think, and you guys may be no better than me, but I'm, my memory was that we were kind of about 80-20, that it was about 80% Peter, 20% Spider-Man. Yeah, so I think so. It was, you know, it was plot-driven as a story, which I think is kind of what made it work. Yeah. If it wasn't 80-20, I would almost say definitely for sure a good 60-40. Um, but I, I want to say, yeah, it was probably more 80-20. Yeah, we definitely saw yeah. more Peter Parker, Parker than as I Oh, and you know, yeah, I mean, the general kind of the general sort of um, device was that Peter would drive the story, but Spider-Man would be the one who would actually have to solve it and he would resolve it. So, um, you know, because there were just things Peter, Peter couldn't do as Peter that needed to be done in order to achieve the outcome. And that seemed to work pretty well. I mean, the other thing is, frankly, is that we had so little money and we were shooting the show so fast that they really just didn't have the time or the budget to do more than a couple of stunts per episode. 
because, you know, the big stunts like, you know, climbing the outside of the Empire State Building or climbing a building, you know, a skyscraper in Hong Kong, you know, those took a long time and they were expensive. And so usually the shows would be limited to, you know, kind of one or two big set piece stunts per episode, uh, you know, or a big fight with a lot of martial arts guys or whatever. Uh, but it, it's much more time consuming shooting stunts and, and, and effects than it is shooting human beings talking to each other. And, and I will say for those who criticize the look of those stunts, if you go to was it Avengers Campus at Disneyland and you look at Spidey when he comes down from the rooftop, when I first saw that for the first time, I'm like, they took that right from the 77 show because that looks the exact same way. <laughs> and here we are almost 35, 45 years later, and it's the safest way to do that bit. Yeah. So on the subject of the stunts. Well, um, well it's also if, you, if you're doing it. Yeah. Mm. No, please finish. No, that was it. I was just I was just going to say when you're doing it for real instead of with CGI and it's not computer computer generated, it's actually a real human being on a wire, 60 stories up in the air, then, you know, you, you have to deal with the reality that, you know, someone could get killed yep. if, you, if, if you did not do it the right way. And so, I mean, you can do anything if it's a computer doing it, you know, but, and, and these days it's only Quentin Tarantino who insists on doing it all for real. Everybody else does it with CGI. <laughs> but anyway, please go on about the stunts. Um, so what about the stunts is obviously some of the riskier stuff had you know, would had to have been done by by a professional stunt person. Uh, did mm -hmm. you ever doing some of them yourself? Just I did a few, but what, what we just established again right from the beginning is I had a guy, I had a double, uh, Freddie Wall, who was an ex Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey circus right. guy. He had been a high wire act guy, so he was completely fearless about heights and he was also he was considerably older than me but he was still incredibly fit and he was very um nimble and so what we would do is anything i felt i could do quite comfortably i would do anything i thought freddie can do this better than me freddie did it and also if there was ever any dialogue in the scene like if there's a scene where spider-man is actually speaking to some people in the scene i always did i didn't think it was fair for the other actors to ask them to act a scene with someone who's not an actor and so I would put I would put the suit on sometimes just to come in and do the scene with them. Uh, and so roughly speaking, Eric, I would have to say that, you know, I played Peter. Freddie played Spider-Man, except when you see Spider-Man talking, when you see Spider-Man engaged in a scene with other always me and maybe 20, 25 percent of the time when you see him doing physical stunt stuff, that's me, too. But when you see him doing amazingly difficult, you know, that's not me. That's Freddie. OK, what? We, uh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Eric. No way the insurance were going to allow me to do that. Uh, we did put out the call on uh, some social media platforms and uh, one of the, you know, asking, you know, what do you want us to ask uh, Mr. Hammond? And um, one person came in and said, ask him what it was like putting on the spandex. And I figured this is oh, yeah. on that subject right there with the costumes. You know, what was it like putting on the spandex? Or, or even, and even before that, what was it like seeing it for the first time? Well, could you just repeat that? 
uh, Eric had asked uh, the question we got, what was it like putting on the spandex? And then I added to it, was, seeing it for the first time. It was, what was well, seeing it for the first time was sort of amazing because when I first saw it, I thought, how am I going to pull this off? How am I going to get into that suit and actually convince people that I am Spider-Man? And then, of course, I realized that actually is exactly the way Peter Parker should feel the first time he puts the suit on. And we even shot a scene, which was my idea, in the when he's in the attic at his aunt's house and he puts the suit on for the first time when he makes the suit. And then you see him pull the mask off and look at himself in the mirror and just laugh. And he laughs at kind of like, this is just so cool and amazing. And I thought, well, that's the way I felt. And I think that's the way the, it's the truthful way that a guy would feel doing that. But once I got used to wearing it, I really liked it. I really liked it. You do feel like a different person. You do feel there's something also about the anonymity of it because you are, you know, unlike Superman, unlike other superheroes where you still see their face, because you are completely concealed, you know, it could be anybody in that suit. And that is kind of a liberating thing because you just feel completely free. So it was, it was great. I loved it. It was cool. I also remember in that uh, in that series, uh, you were explaining to J. Jonah Jameson why he was wearing spandex in the first place. And I remember going like, <laughs> oh, crap, that is the that's the best rationale that I've ever heard for for superheroes wearing spandex. So that's right. Yeah, that's that, but you are right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to know, did you have a favorite episode? Um, I had a few. I loved the I loved the two hour one we did in Hong Kong. Uh, because Rosalind Chow, who was the girl in that, I is a friend of mine to this day, and and I thought she was very good, and and I thought it was a very interesting episode. I thought it got into some subject matters that was really quite interesting, and it was just amazing to being in China filming it. Uh, I liked the pilot very much because I thought the pilot shot in New York was was the kind of pure introduction of the character where where he you could you could make all the missteps and the and the you know the the things you do the mistakes you make until you've got the character downright I'm talking about not us as filming in the filming but I mean Peter himself I thought he had the freedom to not be perfect because it's all new to him and he's, and he's, you know, he's taking baby steps in what it's like to have superpowers. And um, yeah, so I thought those two were really good. I, I, I did. I, I really, I, mean, I also love the one where I played a double character. I played an evil, an evil Spider-Man and a good Spider-Man. I think that might've been called Day of the Clones. I'm not sure, but it was very good. That was really fun because it's always fun playing a double character. I was going to ask you, I was going to get around to asking you, you know, what was it like basically playing two different characters in the same show? Well, it's terrific because as an actor, it just gives you a chance to show your chops a little bit, you know, where you, you can play an evil character, an evil person and a, and a hero at the same time. I, I mean, you know, in the same episode. And you just, you know, it, it, it is literally like being in two different shows. And it's like you're in one show where you're a bad guy and you're in another show where you're a good guy. But they, you know, you they, they cut them together. 
and uh, and, and I, I loved it that, because there was anything that was a challenge to me was always really fun on this series. I remember there were a couple, at least a couple of scenes in that episode where both Peters are like standing in the same room, interacting with each other. Yeah, I remember how mm-hmm. it was pulled off. Yeah. Yeah, I do kind of. As I, as I remember, it, it was something where they would have to lock the camera so the camera wouldn't move at all. And I would shoot the one on one half of the frame and then I would go and shoot the other one on the other half of the frame and they could they could put them together somehow. I'm not sure how. But it was a, I, I've done that on a few shows where basically they lock down the camera so there's no camera movement at all. And then you can you can shoot different things and you can somehow in the edit, you can mix them. So is it something where and I ask this more on the tech side of things, because I'm an audio engineer uh, at Walt Disney World here right. in Orlando. Uh, and I've, I've oh, been right. and I've been in the industry over 33 years, um, but I'm always love learning new things. Is this something where they would have you do all your lines that would appear on the left hand uh, from the Peter on yeah. the left hand? Inside right. of the screen, and then That's right. after you've read all those lines, you then go over and do the the right hand side of the screen. Correct. Did you did you have to figure oh. did you have to figure out the timing between no, responses? I had my assistant, who well, no, because I had a guy who always worked with me all the way through the whole series, uh, who was my stand-in, but he would also run lines with me when I would learn when I was learning lines, and he just would stand behind the camera and he would play the other guy. What was so in other words, let's say I play good Peter first. Well, he'd stand behind the camera. I mean, I had an eye line where I had to look and then I'd be looking with the eye line where I'm supposed to be looking where the other Peter is going to be. But uh, Bobby would be behind the camera reading the other character. So we, we got the, so the rhythm would be fine. And as you would know, being an audio engineer, you yeah. know, we would leave so there were no overlaps. Right. You know, so so then the sound engineer could cut the two together and um, and then I go on the other side and he'd do the opposite. So that's and, you know, we didn't do it very often because we only had, as Eric just said, we only had a couple of scenes where he's actually interacting with himself. And I will say on as an audio engineer as well for something like that, too, during that time period, since he, you know, he would have a cost, Nick Nicholas would have a costume change um, and, and go mm-hmm. to the other side. There would be a moment, probably a couple times where the audio engineer would ask for silence on the set so he could record room noise mm-hmm. to filter back in to make yeah. the, the dialogue more seamless. And for a lot of the, exactly. when you have the twin stuff, like um, I know there's a show Zoe watched on the Disney Channel that had one actress playing twins, identical twins. Probably a lot of the same thing was done there as well, just so you keep, so it feels like it was a yeah, natural scene exactly. and that there were two people in the room instead of one person bouncing back and forth. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and even when you're not doing, you know, double, double characters like that, you always record, you always record just yeah. ambient sound for, for them to have to in the background on almost every show I've ever done. Hmm. What was the, I, I say geek response. So that, that was the way we did that. What was the geek response like back then? Or what would, or I say geek response because, you know, that's what we call it now. 
but that fan the fandom response back then what was it like um the reactions you got when the show came out well i think he took us all by surprise because as i say i, I do think this was a gamble but they were going to try and see and of course it was the highest rated tv pilot of that year it got like a 37 share and they had no idea i don't think i mean they would have done market research but i don't think they had quite an idea of the depth of the fan base for Spider-Man, and and uh, you know it was it was fascinating to me because the response was very positive very quickly, and um, you know I mean obviously it was what it was, and you know and there would be some people that would say oh this is like a kids show, but then they'd watch it and they'd say no actually it's not a kids show you know everybody can and and a lot of the letters I got were from parents who said you know this is a great show to be able to sit down and watch with your kids because you know the kids want to watch it because they want to see spidey beat people up but you know then they're talking about nuclear waste and they're talking about you know uh corruption and they're talking about you know our our bad guys as you know i mean this was again then this was controversial not everybody liked this but our bad guys were not super villains they were not they were real people they were criminals they were gangsters they were um uh you know people trying to extort the government and blackmail the government for money they were those kinds of bad guys so again we didn't have like you know green goblins dressed up as bad guys we had real people we had men in three-piece suits who were just evil bastards and you know and it was peter's job to um defang them to to get them in handcuffs and get them to jail so i think a lot of parents really like that they really like the message it sent one of the one of the um side aspects of it that, that was completely fascinating to me and and even to this day people speculate why it was the case but it was hugely popular with African-American kids. And I went into a lot of inner city schools in LA to talk and give appearances and talk about reading and the importance of school and the importance of learning. And I mean, the reaction was, would be like a rock concert. And I never quite knew why they were relating to this white kid who was, you know, 19 years old in the, in the show and who goes to college and all that. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, once he's got that suit on, he has no skin color. He could be anything. And, you know, if you're a black kid or if you're a girl, you watch Superman, you're not going to see yourself as Clark Kent. Right. You know, but once Spider-Man is Spider-Man, that can be a Hispanic, a Chinese, an African-American. It could be a girl, you know, I mean... It, it it loses it loses a kind of um, identity that pigeonholes it, and I mean, look, I'm making this up because, but it's the only theory I've been able to come up with. Well, and I, you know, even to this day, Mike, if if any, yeah, sorry, go on. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, to this day, if I get recognized in public as Peter Parker, I mean, I do for other things, but if somebody comes up and says, "Weren't you Peter Parker?" I would say eight times out of it's an African-American. Wow. So. Well, I was going to say. They, they were, 
Going through your list, we now have in the comics a black, I believe, black Hispanic um, Spider-Man with Miles Morales. We have Spider-Woman and Spider-Gwen. Mm. We have an Asian... Um, silk. Okay. Well, there's Silk, but there's also um, the one who created the Spider-Bot, and she's Asian. Oh as well um i mean going through your list we have those now so i so i think i think it's so funny you you're thinking about that back in the 70s and it's decades later we start getting those characters your 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 vision you're you're almost ahead of your time in your own thought and then finally it catches up uh it's amazing that you have to think that way it was just displayed in front of me yeah it was just it was just displayed in front of me because as I said you know uh, it, it, I kept wondering you know uh, why this is but I think that has to be the answer so yeah. so if that did any good if it got if it got a few kids who lived in you know difficult circumstances in the inner city if in some way he was a bit of a role model for them well then I'm really thrilled you know what, so, go ahead Eric no, go ahead you had the question ready um, what was the press junket like going out and doing oh. press for the for the show. Mm. I mean, were you out as Peter, or did you don yeah. or did you don the the suit any at times? And- I think I think I might have done it. I remember we had a photo shoot at the top of the Empire State Building. There's a there's an observation deck yep. on the top of the Empire State Building, and um, in fact, they they um, Sleepless in Seattle shot the final scene in the movie up there, and. Um, and I remember going up there with a lot of uh, press and doing a photo shoot as as Spider-Man, uh, uh, you know, looking out over the city. Uh, I didn't answer questions as Spider-Man. You know, I just thought that's stupid. I mean, I'm, it's me, you know, in the suit. Why don't I just – so I would really be – well, I mean, I, I didn't even go as Peter. I just went as me. But, you know, but I would certainly – like we're doing right now, you know, I would yeah. – except it was all new. It was all new then. So to an awful lot of the press people, particularly the ones from overseas, because, you know – these my shows were released in theatrically around the world. They weren't released as a TV series. They put together uh, the the two part shows and did them as movies. And they, so they did three movies, and they were so successful in cinemas that then they what they did is they started joining like two episodes together so they could release it in the movie. So I we if I was talking to somebody from Italy or someone from England or someone from France, I would have to first explain the whole backstory of who the character was and how he come to be and all that because they didn't know anything about it. But yeah, but it was good. I enjoyed it. And they were, again, you know, everybody was thrilled, particularly young people. And I'm glad you said that. Um, I got into an argument with a co-worker at work uh, a couple years ago and I said, the first Marvel film to ever make it on the big screen was Howard the Duck. And he's going, no, Spider-Man was the first one on the big screen. I'm like, no, what you're thinking of is where they took a couple of the two part episodes and made them movies for the international audience, just like they made the Batman movie for the international audience to introduce the series to their TV. And then that movie got broken up in the States into uh 
I think a four part episode. That's not part of the actual run. It was split up over four, four half hours so they could show it on TV. I didn't know that. If they didn't do the movie uh, or do it in movie format. But I think most of the time it was in movie format. But I know the Batman movie was made for the international audience to introduce the characters. That's why you had the entire Batman rogues gallery in the film. Right. Was right. to introduce the whole right. thing right. international. Mm. So I'm like, so if you saw Spider-Man in the theater, it was actually from the TV series. If it was with Nicholas Hammond. And, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you know, that. That's what I, I would it was. say. I would say, <laughs> yeah, but I would also say your friend is also right. I think you're both right here because what happened was, this is the way I understand it. It was always the intention, which is why we shot it in 35 millimeter. It was always the intention that what was the pilot on American TV was always going to be released theatrically around the world. So it was shot. We took much longer to shoot it. We shot on location in Manhattan. Um, we had a, a, a director who was more of a movie director than a TV director, E.W. Sparkhammer. And we knew going in that, okay, in the U.S., this is going to be on television. But everywhere else on planet Earth that this might ever show, people are going to buy a ticket and go and park their butt in a seat in a movie theater and watch it. And I would, and I was getting mail from, you know, and, and because the first one did very well, theatrically uh that's when they decided hey this is a good idea from now on every time we do a two-hour one or a two-parter we'll do the same thing so that's i would great. actually say mike that you're both i would say okay. you're both right <laughs> okay so when typically did to see the finished article um i guess is you know for the for the tv series and did you attend any of the premieres overseas and no i i, I didn't but but I the first time I saw the show was when it aired because I didn't go to any of the I didn't I don't like going to dailies uh, I find they they make you very self conscious at me anyway so I just I, like everybody else in the world I would just tune in you know on Tuesday night at eight o'clock or whenever it was on on Channel Nine and watch the show with the rest of the world so but I usually had done so much press beforehand that I'd kind of seen little clips of it. Are there any clips that uh, stick out in your memory that you remember filming that wound up on the cutting room floor and you just thought, man, I wish we had that scene back? That's an interesting question. Um, most of what we shot we used, but I, I think there was some stuff again in, I think it's called the Dragon's Challenge, which is the Hong Kong show, yeah. the China show. There's, there was a bit more that we shot between the girl and me because we just kind of very, very gently touched on the idea that she's Asian and I'm not. And she comes from a very conservative Chinese family. And what's their reaction going to be if she and I have any kind of romantic connection? And I thought that was really, you know, it was just getting into the whole thing of, you know, racial prejudice and whatever. And that didn't make it into the show. And maybe wisely, maybe wisely, it just was not really relevant to the actual story. I mean, very clear in the show, you know, that we're very, we're very fond of. And maybe that's all we needed. But I do remember a couple of things that we shot that I really liked at the time we shot them. 
of it were, you know, they were in that ballpark. But most of what we shot, we, I mean, in fact, almost everything. Oh, I'll tell you one thing. Oh, actually, I have just suddenly remembered something, Eric. <laughs> this is also funny. This is from the same show. I don't know whether they ever even intended this to be in the movie. We shot a scene, a sequence at, um, I think it's called the Kowloon Market, Fish Market. It's right on the edge of the water. And they're, you know, just like hundreds of people. And they're all sitting there with their big wicker baskets. And they've got fish and crabs and eel and God knows what, every kind of creature under the sun, a lot of them alive, that they're selling. <clears throat> Not so funny now after Wuhan and COVID. But anyway, and all of a sudden, we were just ready to shoot. And... There's a knock on the door of my trailer. I see assistant director. He said, Nicholas, we got a problem out here. And I said, what? What are you talking about? And he said, they've all just packed up all their stuff and gone. They're not going to they're not going to sit out here and let us. We had laid track down the middle for a dolly shot of the camera going all the way down with me walking and through the whole market. So you see the fabulous market. And he said, they've all packed up their stuff and gone. And I said, well, what's happening? And he said, well, apparently Blake Edwards was here shooting a movie. And he used the same market. I don't know if it was a Pink Panther movie or something. And he said, when they did that movie, the assistant just went right down the whole line, handing each person a $50 bill. So now, unless we hand each one a $50 bill, they're not going to do it. So, and, and that was beyond our budget. I mean, there were thousands of these people, you know. So, so I said, oh, well, what are we doing? He said, we're working on it. Just stay, just stay here for a minute. We might need you for something. And then he comes back and he says, Nicholas, I want you to introduce you to Mr. So-and-so. And there was this very short, very um, chubby Chinese gentleman grinning from ear to ear. And he said, Mr. Wu or whatever, he, he's going to be in the scene with you. And I said, oh, why? And he said, well, you know, we just, we just, you know, like he's a friend you've made. So we just want the two of you, we're going to do the shot of you and Mr. Wu just walking the length of the road and, and put your arm around his shoulder. I said, whatever. So I go out and we start to shoot this. And I don't even know if they put film in the camera, but they did it as if. So they basically obviously told this guy, you can be in the movie and you can be in the movie with me. Uh, we shot the scene. All of the merchants came back out again and opened up their boxes. So we were ready to go. And I said, what, what just happened? They said, that guy is the head of the biggest triad gang in Hong Kong. <laughs> and he controls the waterfront. And when they saw that he was your friend, he said, they all came back. <laughs> so I, I, figured what, I figured whatever they had to pay Mr. I hope that they filmed that. I would love to see it today. Wow. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I've ever told that story, but it, it, you just prompted my memory. <laughs> Exclusive. Now we we've talked about uh, Rosalind Chow a couple of times. For mm -hmm. those who don't yes, know, you may know her from the role of Soon Lee Soon Lee Klinger from Mash and After Mash. So I mean, she yes. she she had a, a a reoccurring role in Mash for quite some time so and she was just recently she just recently played the mother in that big big chinese movie is it called 
oh, what is it? Mulan. Mulan, oh, the film that's, that's right. based the on the film. comic. Yeah. And, and, and they shot it in New Zealand and she was there for a long, long time. And then, of course, the virus hit just before they were about to open the movie and they had to postpone it for like a year. Wow. Because I was I was in L.A. for the uh, for the Academy Awards for uh, the Tarantino movie. And and I saw Ross and she said her movie was just about to open and then bang, like a month later, they shut everything down. Wow. Yeah. Well, what uh, what some listeners, uh, some fans may not know is that you were in the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. Uh, was I? Oh, that, that's that's what IMDb says. No, Wait, they're wrong. IMDb, it's uh, it, it's Wikipedia. No, it's wrong. Oh, I've had, I cannot. I have. I, I cannot tell you the number. I mean, if I had, if I had a quarter for every time somebody online has said, "Why isn't Nicholas Hammond doing a cameo in the Spider-Man movies?" You know, I'd be buying myself a yacht. But um, no, I, I, I mean, look, for a long time, it was always Stan who did the who did the cameo in those movies. Yep. But now that Stan's passed away, you know, look, for whatever reason, Sony's just never thought it was something they wanted to do. And that's fine. You know, I, I, I don't mind. But I think I think I think the audience would get a pretty big kick out of it. So, I, but no, I haven't done the two. Well, I saw that. It's just kind of like that is so cool, and well, it would have been. <laughs> well, let well, me. Well, let's. Somebody is listening. Would you be willing to come do a a cameo in a Spider-Man movie? Of course, of course, I would. I think it would be huge fun. And I mean, I think it would be even better to literally do a cameo, like a tiny cameo, like, you know, walk in the background as a waiter in a restaurant or something, rather than actually have a full scene. Because if you have a full scene, everybody's going to say, oh, that's Nicholas Hammond. But, you know, if, you, if you're just doing something where you're like, you know, just there, you know, but not in the front, and then people are going, is that, was that, did we just, no, couldn't have been. Was that actually, see, to me, that's much more fun. Well, let me ask this question. Because um, I know there's been rumors out there, and we could pretty much say, based on this most recent transaction of conversation, they're false. If Sony came to you and said, we're going to do a Spider-Verse movie, and yeah. we want you to appear as either Parker or in the costume, maybe minus the mask, would you do it? Sure, sure. Let's make it, let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. You, if, if you can, you can come to the premiere. Well, <laughs> or I'd like to come to Disney Orlando. I've never been to Disney Orlando, and I'd really like to go there someday. So if I do, I'll look you up, Mike. Uh, please do. Please do. You know what I think would be hilarious? Mr. Hammond here plays J. Jonah Jameson. Ooh. That's been, you're not the first person to say that, but I think, or, or to play, or to play Peter's, you know, uncle or Peter's father or Peter's whatever, you know, but, but to play Jonah would be good too. Well, yeah. I mean, to, would probably be a little bit too, uh, I don't want to use the word obvious, but you know, obvious. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. But I, I think it would be just, I would laugh the whole time if you were ever to play. <laughs> Well, I think it'd be fun. Anting at whatever this incarnation of Peter Parker is going, get me pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> well, from, from your lips to Sony's ears. If if Sony is listening, and there's no reason why they shouldn't. <laughs> please, That's right. Yeah. Well, I did, a, I did a movie for Sony two years ago that got 12 Oscar nominations, so it's not like I'm somebody that they, is going to be a major risk to them. <laughs> 
It's true. And he a lot of other roles. I mean, outside of Spider-Man. Yes, yeah, I have. You've been in The Sound of You've been in so many different TV series. I remember when The Martian Chronicles came to television, and you were in it, and I just, I remember just looking at the screen and go, holy crap, it's Peter Parker. He's on Mars. Well, that's right. Yeah, that was a wonderfully written show, Martian Chronicles, Ray Bradbury of course. But that was a, when I think back on it, you know, at the time, I did it during a hiatus on the series and had to fly to Malta and it was all, you know, it's like you're on a plane and then you're off the plane and then you're in front of the camera. But it's only afterwards that I thought, gee, you know, Rock Hudson was in that, you know, Gail Honeycutt was in that. I mean, there were amazing people that were in that show. And it was a wonderful script, I thought. And, um, you know, terrific director. So, I'm glad you saw it. Yeah, I, I saw it. I still, I wish I could get it on video or DVD somewhere, which it may oh, be. Oh, you can. It is. It's, it, yeah. it is out. It's for sale. I think if you just Google it or if you go to Amazon or something, you can buy it. You can buy the DVD of it. I will definitely have to. But uh, the, the question I was I was taking the scenic route to getting to is, <laughs> are there any particular roles outside of Spider-Man that just, you know, impress upon your memory as kind of like, wow, you know, I actually did this or just particularly that sticks out as favorites to you. Mm, yeah. Well, quite a few, actually. I mean, um, I did a, I did a two part gun smoke when I was very young playing the bad guy. Uh, and I got an yeah. Emmy nomination for that. And, and it was a show that I was very proud of. I did a number of gun smokes after that, but I, that was one of the first things when I went through my stage of doing lots of Westerns, um, so I was very proud of that work because it was so far removed from anything I'd done before, you know. Uh, suddenly you're out in Tucson, Arizona on a horse and you're playing the bandito and, you know, and I mean, to me, this was just like being a little kid, you know, playing cowboys and Indians. That one I loved. Um, I did a movie, uh, I did a movie with, a, a, I mean, a TV series, not a movie, but it was shot like a movie called The Manions of America, where Pierce Brosnan and I played brothers. And uh, it was Pierce's first job ever uh, on American television. And we shot it in Ireland. And again, it was a wonderful cast. It was Linda Pearl. It was Kate Mulgrew. It was, you know, very, very good people. And um, Joe Sargent directed it, and that was a that was one of those special ones too, because we we became a really tight knit family on that. And you know, Pierce and Linda and I are still very good friends to this day. I'm godfather of Pierce's son, and um, so that one. And then I would say uh, playing Sam Wanamaker, you know, because for me, doing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Being surrounded by those extremely gifted people and, you know, stepping up to the plate and and working at that level with people like Quentin and Leo and uh, Margot and people like that. It, 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 was, um, it was exciting and it was hugely fulfilling and, and rewarding to think that, that they were pleased with the work I did. So I would have to say those would be among my top three, certainly. Okay. But I've been very lucky in my life. I mean, I've done almost 200 TV shows and 40 films and I can count on like one finger 
the bad experiences, you know. So I, I think I think to have a career that goes from the time you're 11 until the time you're 70 and have nothing but good experiences doing it, I feel incredibly fortunate. Well, we're going to keep we're going to keep this show positive and not even bring up what was the bad experience. But <laughs> I will say good. I'm going to do a quick fan casting of Nicholas in Spider-Man in a Spider-Man film before I get to asking about sound of music. Actually, I do have one other Spider-Man related question. My fan casting Nicholas as either Silvermane or Mr. Negative. Mm. Now that okay. you both crime bosses. Yes. Why don't you why don't you put it to your listeners when this when this drops and see what they think? Okay, listeners, you heard the man. <laughs> Would you fan cast Nicholas in the MCU? Yep. We've had Silvermane. We've had J. Jonah Jameson. Mr. Negative. Mr. Negative. That would be nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, who? Because I'll, I'll be fascinated to find out. So will we. Now, my my second, <laughs> my, my Spider-Man, my final Spider-Man related question. Was there ever going to be a reunion of the cast or a reunion of the CBS Marvel characters. I don't know the answer to that because if there was, that was something discussed at the network level that never got to the point. There, there was, as I as I said in other articles, there was a kind of wouldn't it be great thing while we were making the show to because it was at a time where that where where CBS and the other networks they were they were doing a lot of cross cross-pollinating of series, you know, man, um, Six Million Dollar Man and, you know, Six Million Dollar Woman, and they would appear on each other. Lindsay Wagner would appear, you know, right. on the one and blah, blah. And we talked about, wouldn't it be cool to have Bill Bixby and Lou join forces with and Spider-Man and and all where where the Hulk and Spider-Man, either as adversaries or working as a team, have to solve the same crisis. And but again, it, it never got beyond the stage of us just, you know, talking at lunch about it. And oh, wouldn't that be cool? And oh yeah, I'm gonna call up, I'm gonna call up Bill and see what he thinks. And then unfortunately, of course, Bill passed away and our show got canceled, their show got canceled, and that was the end of that idea. But I think it was starting to gain a bit of momentum. And because, as I say, this was the time where they were cross-promoting shows by putting their actors from one show on another show. Uh, I, I, it, it was not a ridiculous idea, and I would have loved it, because I, I had great respect for Bill. I think he was a terrific actor, and I would have lo- really welcomed the opportunity of doing some scenes with him. Yeah. I think it would have been a lot better if it, uh, with uh, Spider-Man and Peter Parker than uh, Thor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the Now, going back towards the beginning of your career, how about some stories from Sound of Music? Um, oh, gosh. Uh, because well, that, that was another mon- mon- monumental film for you as well. Yeah, it was. It was no, well, listen, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, that that's the movie that changed my life. And in fact, it didn't just change my life. It changed everybody's life who worked on that film, including Julie's, you know. I mean, when we all say that to each other quite openly, when we see each other, you know, we all say that movie changed everything for all of us. And um, it just catapulted me into a category that was so much more than just being yet another child actor in Hollywood. 
And uh, and again, to this day, you know, I mean, this is where I'm so lucky because I've got two, at least two, if not three or four shows that I did that carry on as kind of legacy shows to this day. And the audience for, for Sound of Music is as big today as it was when we made it. And people, you know, the show goes on and on and on. And, the, you know, the, all the derivations of it, the, the DVDs, the Blu-rays, the, you know, the screenings in cinemas. Um, and so it's a great joy for me to have been a part of that. And it was a huge, huge joy to do. And I love all those people who were on it. And, you know, and they're still very, very dear friends of mine, all of them. I toured with Julie in a show, a stage show, uh, a couple of years ago. We did an evening with with the two of us. And, you know, we told stories about Sound of Music and we showed film clips and we answered questions. And I mean, she did about her whole career. But the two of us did about Sound of Music. Look, I was very fortunate to be a part of something that has brought so much happiness to so many people. That's kind of a privilege where people want to come up and tell you their story about what that movie means to them or their grandmother just before Um We all appeared on Oprah Winfrey not that long ago. And I remember when we were done with the show and I went out to the stage door to get in the car. And of course, there were a lot of people there who wanted to you know, have an autograph and whatever. But there was one woman that kind of caught my eye and I thought, she looks like she really wants to say something. And she came up and she said, I just want to thank you. She said, my husband was in Vietnam. And she said, when he came back from Vietnam, he was destroyed mentally. He didn't want to live. He wanted to he wanted to kill himself. And she said, I played that movie for him. Oh, no. Unfortunately, we cannot ignore the inevitable. I hate to say it, but unfortunately, um, there were some connection issues. I don't know if Hydra was involved or any of the crime syndicates from the 77 Amazing Spider-Man series were involved. Um, But... uh, Eric, you, you were catching most of what he was trying to say about the yeah. the sound of music because I there was as y'all heard there was some some breakup and I was trying to figure out what I might I went into tech mode and production mode of <laughs> how do I how and, do I keep this going and I was sitting here thinking please tell me that this is on my end please tell me that Mike is getting all this but he's basically telling the story about how uh, he was going out to the car and. There was he, he caught this lady caught his eyes like she was trying to uh, she wanted to say something so he goes up to her and uh, she said that her husband was in Vietnam and when he came back he was uh, I think the word he used was destroyed yeah he uh, he really he wanted to to end himself and from the bits and pieces that I that I could hear it's like she played that movie to him every day for about six months. And we don't know how that story ends, but seeing as he's sharing that movie, we can we hope that that story had a happy ending. Yes, and, and it's great when you know you're part of a a movie or any any kind of endeavor that helps bring somebody back from such a dark place. See, what with with me, that type of thing is 
in the Disney world, not Walt Disney World, but okay, the Disney universe as as a cast member, we call that a magic moment. So for him with Sound of Music, which I don't know why I said Sandy originally when I meant Julie when I first pitched that at the beginning of the show. I was about to say, I don't remember him doing a movie with Sandy Duncan, but that would have been cool too. Part A lot of that was my nerves because I'm talking to Spider-Man. I'm talking to Peter yeah. Parker. And, and for those who don't know, yes, Eric and I are in that half century plus mark. We, I think the term is pentagenarian. We, we are pentagenarians. In we other were, words, over level 50. We watched that show as kids. I know I did. Yeah. And thankfully, I was living in the central time zone. So the show came on at eight o'clock, not nine o'clock. And I still watched it. I watched it with my dad. I actually got my dad to watch it because I was interested. Um, plus, it's, it's Spider-Man. Well. I don't I won't speak for you, Mike, but I basically had a a moment of kind of like, you know, before we started recording is kind of like this is one of my childhood heroes. Well, hero, quote unquote hero. But, you know, it's almost like if I got to meet Gil Gerard, Buck Rogers or Dirk Benedict from Battlestar Galactica or, you know, just or or John or John Anderson from Guardians of the Galaxy, too. Wait, yeah, too. that did happen. actually seen him a couple times after that um so that's that's been a lot of fun or uh oh crap that the it just left my mind um david hasselhoff uh uh-huh so stardew hasselfrau oh but but nicholas is totally i mean for me, it'd be cool to meet all those people as well. But Nicholas is totally different. I put Nicholas up there with Burt Ward. Okay. Adam West. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was I was into all the other shows that you mentioned in those characters as well. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, that's what helped shaped my fandom of now. But it's one of those. I had the Mego doll of Spider-Man. I had a lot of the Mego dolls, superhero dolls, DC, Marvel, whatever. And I always, when I watched the show, always had my Spider-Man doll with me. I remember seeing those. Yeah. I, I always watched it. Spider-Man. I know in the past when we first started the show, 300 and this is issue 345. What a great guest to have for 345. There you go. But 345, if if I was to mention who was my favorite Marvel character, I think going based off the MCU, I still would have gone Cap. But in all honesty, I think my split of actual favorite characters and it's... I need to get back onto Marvel Unlimited. I need to figure out a way of getting the annual subscription again. Um, When I had Marvel Unlimited, I thoroughly enjoyed reading all the back Spider-Man comics. Comics I read as a kid and bringing those back. Yeah. And I mean, my, my desk chair, my computer chair is a Spider-Man chair. I will attest to that for all of you who cannot see him. Uh, when you heard Kylan and I talk about the company and a seat, the two chairs I said, I really liked from them was the Captain America and Spider-Man seat, uh, of the different Spider-Men. Yes. I have come to enjoy 2099 miles. 
Silk, Spider Woman, Gwen. How can I not enjoy Spider Gwen? Zoe would shoot me. Um, Parker has always been the one I relate to the most. Well, because because that's well, my that's our generation. Speaking well, of yes, Eric and I, but there's also the everyman quality about you know the the saying you know some people were born to greatness, others have greatness thrust upon them. Well, Spider Man has typically always been that type. He is. The, yes. the the person, the everyday Joe who finds himself able to do things that other people can't. Right. Throughout throughout uh, his comics history, he, you've never lost sight of that. Is that you know he's he's just a he's just a New York kid who's in over his head most of the time. See, Journey Journey could have been writing the song "Don't Stop Believing" about Peter Parker and Spider Man if they chose to use New York instead of Detroit. Well, I'm just saying. Just saying. But we definitely do want to thank Nicholas Hammond for joining us this evening. Unfortunately, he left um, us way too soon. Yes. Uh, I mean, okay. Just to clarify. Hope- He's still alive. Yes, it's just his connect. Alive. It's just his connection ended too soon. Would yeah. love to have done a proper wrap up with him. Yeah, um, so, Mr. Hammond, I, if are still, if you're listening to this after it drops, thank you so very much for joining us this evening. Yes, and, and, and you and you anytime. and you have made the comment during our show, our ep, our issue that you would love to come to Disney Orlando. You, you have you know how to get a hold of me please do because yes i would love to make contact with you if not if when you come here i would i would love to meet you in person and when you and when i do meet you in person i will have a special mighty marvel geeks lanyard badge for you his will be the only badge that will have the spidey web background to it as well it should as well it should so again thank you sir you're welcoming Anytime you want to join us, please come back. You can be a part-time co-host, just like a friend of the show, John Tyler Christopher. Yes, yes. So, By the way, been away for a while, Jer. There, uh, John. I need, re- with that? I need to reach out to him. I need to tell him too. Hey, we spoke with Nicholas Hammond. That may draw his attention. It, neener, neener, neener. Um. So let's uh, briefly talk about. This week's Loki. And for a change, I actually finished watching it before the show. I did too. I watched it yesterday on Wednesday as, as it came out. I um, was not to catch the uh, the new episode last week, so for me it was a double header. So let's talk about some Easter eggs and references in this ep- in this episode. Okay. Um, one we get Excellent. to one you know we we get to the, the four Lokis that we saw in the end credit scene. Yes. Um, but the first Easter egg. Did you catch what the title of this episode was called? Yes, I did. And that was not the first time we've seen or heard that. Because if you remember, Darcy asks Thor, you ready to join us on our little journey into mystery? Yep. Now, here, here's the other interesting part that I, I discovered. For all you listening, all you field agents, go to Disney+. Plus. Go to the Marvel section. Go to watch in chronological order. Are you aware of where I'm going, Eric? Are we talking about the entire MCU? Yes. In, in chronological order. Loki is placed before WandaVision. So chronologically, 
it sit Loki sits between Endgame and WandaVision. Mm. So what with this show is going to potentially affect WandaVision or everything after Phase Four in regards well, to I Phase think Four? Definitely are going to get a multiverse of madness out of this. Yeah. Uh, the next Easter egg, and I love this so much. This is a reference to Spidey Super Stories number thirty-nine with um, oh Thanos. And his helicopter. The Thanos copter. I, I left out loud. It's a good thing that I live by myself because I would have gotten so many strange looks just from laughing as hard and as loud and as long as I did at seeing the Thanos copter. Yeah. Um. So from there, I mean, it, it comes up as a joke here and there, even included in an issue of Deadpool, but to see it in the MCU now makes it canon. How crazy is that? Um. Also now canon, Ghostbusters is canon in the MCU. Why? Because Kid Loki is drinking a high C ecto cooler. The movie is canon. Ghostbusters itself may not be. Oh, we're talking the the filmation one. Okay. No. No, I'm just saying, apparently Ghostbusters is a movie in the MCU. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, with the Ecto Cooler, um, it did make a brief return in 2016 to coincide with the Ghostbusters reboot. But at the moment, there's no news of it coming back for the Ghostbusters Afterlife movie. If it is, I'm going to figure out some way of getting one just to have it. So uh, Kid Loki, speaking of, seems to will seems to be wielding a flaming sword that looks a lot like Lavatinum. Yeah, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. Which is the sword the sword that uh, Loki uses in the comics Loki Agent of Asgard, which is a, a recent, more recent title. Because I think that's one uh, that one of the three of us would pick for Pick yeah, of the Week. it's definitely since, uh, since I joined the show. Uh, actually, I want to say it was within the last few years. Yeah. Because I know it used to be a Pick of the Week. Yeah, we did pick it a pretty good bit. Which we need to figure out how to bring back Pick of the Week, whether it's part of the actual episode or part of uh, a bonus, you know, bonus issue. Well, now that things are kind of getting back to normal and we kind of have getting closer to a normal release schedule. Yeah. But, you know, we'll, we'll figure that out. Uh, next one, the Polybius. We we see a Polybius arcade game machine. Now, this I is a... This is a I had to do some research and, and fortunately for Den of Geek, they've also done some of the same research. This game was a long-running urban legend. Supposedly, an arcade machine was set up in Portland, Oregon, washed over by various men in black. No, not referencing the movie. Um... I'll let you handle that message. Uh, apparently, this game was so addicting that it caused fights to break out and horrible side effects to its players. There was also an old space pinball machine in there from Williams. Yeah, oh, Williams. I played that one. As well. I was, um, like, I was happy to see that one. Then we have the Void. Uh, fittingly, it's uh, where all the pruned victims end up in the comics. Uh, the Void is a dark, inexplicable, possibly biblical entry that acts as the evil side of the century. During the storyline siege, the Void murdered Loki and facilitated his rebirth as Kid Loki. And by the way, we are we are reading from an article on denofgeek.com. So um, if, if you originally, if you're thinking this has familiar well that's where it's coming from so thanks to den of geek for posting this so we could uh, so we could pick apart the easter eggs and i see one you missed so we'll get to that uh and then of course the last one get my story up uh actually quite a, there's still a few more yeah 
Aloth? Is that how it's pronounced? Goliath. 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 Because when, when I was watching the show, I thought, okay, well, it rhymes with Goliath. That's how I can. Uh, it's this. He first appears in Avengers, the Terminex objective number one. Uh, the same issue that also introduced Ravona Renslayer to the world, and the one that features Kang as its central villain. I haven't seen about that. To, to quote, um, oh, what was, who was the one talk show host? You're going to have to narrow that down a little bit more. He was on the Fox channel, late night talk show. Tucker Carlson? No, Black Gentleman. I, I don't know. I don't watch network news. No, it was a late night talk show like Letterman. And uh, he's in he's in the uh, Coming to America movies. Eddie Murphy's Arsenio. psychic. Yes, Arsenio Hall. Why can I not think of that name? Dude. This just makes you go, hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. Um, Vote Loki shows up, which was great. Finally get which, to see him. It, that's been something that they have teased the whole freaking time. Yes. That's been an image that has been out there since the series started. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he is there to, to supposedly as the leader, loosely speaking, of all the other coalition of variant Lokis. And who is not a variant of Loki, but has just joined us tonight. Our brother from another mother. <laughs> the third hey, guys. The trio. Dude, we had Dude, Nicholas. If you can't get your own time. Get here when you can. We had Nicholas Hammond. I know. I, I, I was. The thing is, you know, the the tickets were bought like three weeks before we got Nicholas, so I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, you just had love for a different insect, different yeah. spider, different type of spider. You know what? You're right. So uh, just to wrap, we're, we're kind of covering this week's episode of Loki, but just through the okay. Easter eggs, because there's just so many yes. Easter eggs. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to go through these quickly because my editing's going to be insane tonight or this week. Yeah. For, so I hope all you on Sorcerer Radio appreciate it for what I'm having to do. Um, <laughs> frog Thor. We see a frog resembling Thor shown in a jar labeled T365. Hmm. Which it stands for Thor. 365, which is the issue where Loki transforms Thor into a frog. <laughs> uh, frog Thor also got mentioned in Thor Ragnarok during the play within the movie scene, seen as Loki apologized to Thor for turning him into a frog. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and apparently there is an independent wrestler with a Thor frog gimmick. Nice. <laughs> Uh, then we have classic Loki. So it appears, yeah, yeah. So played by Richard E. Grant, and this is what Loki is going to look like when he is older. Uh, well, classic, classic Loki, but also quote unquote. Um, I guess what they say. I had heard the term future Loki because more of his age instead of look a character. Well, that's also right. how he was introduced. Right. So this is kind of like, you know, pointed to kid Loki, you know, me from the past on now, the classic Loki for the future. Now, I don't think it has uh, been talked about, but. The alligator Loki is the Loki from Marvel Pets. Okay. Okay. So he's I supposed have... to represent the Loki of Marvel Pets. Okay. Maybe, maybe classic Loki is my second favorite Loki in that episode. <laughs> Just <laughs> because he reminds me, he has a very strong Agent P vibe. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, he never says anything you can understand, but they have no problem understanding it. Right. Now, um, 
We also see the head of a living of the living tribunal. Who was mentioned, who was referenced in Doctor Strange because Baron Mordor, Mordo, one does not simply walk into Mordo. Um, <laughs> he was carrying the staff of the living tribunal. Right. Right. Uh, we see the USS Eldridge, which if you're curious, uh, this is the ship that was rumored to be the subject of the Philadelphia experiment. Right. Now, there is a Easter egg that this Den of Geek article does not reference, but I noticed it um, when watching the episode. Ronan's ship is yeah. crashed landscape. Yes. Yep. Dark after. And yep. it's just kind of like, wait a minute, that looks familiar. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm sure that somebody has already started, if they haven't already posted, just a breakdown of every single ruined building. Like, you know, we saw the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, I think we saw an Avengers Tower in there. Uh, and- yes. Uh, when um, Classic Yoki classic Yoki when classic Loki is Ooh. is building his Asgard there is a Stark mm-hmm. Tower and the Stark Tower has if but it's not labeled Stark Tower it's labeled Kane's with a Q like Q Q E N so there's reference to Kane the Conqueror throughout this for those of you who ah. know, there was a time when Stark had to sell a Stark Tower and Kang Kang Q Q E N G was the name of the company that bought it, but it was basically a front company for Kang the Conqueror. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. So, so yeah, it was that in there. And then the castle. It looks a lot like Doomstot, but it's most likely not. It, this is probably more Castle Limbo, home of Kang the Conqueror, or could it be a few other things? Well, uh, I've heard then and now mentioned. Yeah. I've heard Loki, God of Stories mentioned. You know, my own personal theory though, is that we have already seen the MCU's King the Conqueror. It's Renslayer. Because in the comics, Renslayer was well, it's a complicated relationship with King. Right. Mm-hmm. But they were uh, they were they were wed, they were married, and she sacrificed her life for him. But I'm wondering, I, I'm just thinking, because she is she is definitely not acting like a hero right now. No. She, no. She ordered Mobius pruned. She basically was trying to get Loki pruned from the get-go, which I can't really fault her for that. But I, the last couple of episodes in particular have really shaped her up to be the villain. Yeah. It, yeah. In a, in a series full of villains, she is the villain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the other character possibly being pitched is Immortus. That's that's possible, but I still think that something is going to happen in this next episode. It's where, got to. It's the finale. I know. <laughs> you know, TikTok and all that. But she shows up at this castle, and whatever whatever is behind the TVA or whatever's at the heart of this castle, she winds up taking control of mm-hmm. or she's going to get altered but she is going to become the mcu's king quite possible I really, I just feel it. This could be a Mephisto moment. I don't, you know, I, I fully acknowledge that. Well, but hasn't King already been cast in 
to be in a movie. It's a different actor. Yeah. He's in. Yeah, uh, see, that's the thing. Yeah. Ant-Man, right? The new Ant-Man Quantum Mania. Yeah. Which which goes um, back to the whole thing of TVA is set in the quantum verse. Yeah, it's um, Lovecraft Country star Jonathan Majors, who is yeah. cast to be Kang. So, you know, I, I'm, I may be wrong. But, but um, maybe maybe he appears in episode six, and this is where we come find out that Ravona and him are actually married, I, like I was pointed out. So, yeah. right. who knows? Um, I hate to do this, guys, but got to wrap it up. Final thoughts? Uh, nah, Well, and nah, I feel really bad because I'm about to ask a really dumb question. Did we talk about the Thanos copter? Yes. Because yes. I, I was yesterday years old when I found out that that was even a thing. And I'm like, why does heck, why the heck does he even have a copter? I, but now it's, it's MCU canon. And when you found out what it was, did you not laugh your head off? I absolutely did because it's, yeah. Um, I, I, was, I will say this. I am convinced that there were more Easter eggs just like in the structures that were in the background, there were things that I felt like I should know what they were. Yeah. And and I, I almost felt like that I could probably take that one episode frame by frame and probably find references all the way back to the early days of the Mar uh, of the Marvel Universe. Uh, it, this this was a this was worth um pretty much worth the price of admission. Uh, the uh, given the I I'll, for this episode for this series I I'm I'm not as excited about it as I've been about for WandaVision and for Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But it took episode five for this thing to finally come into its own. Uh, yeah. The last two episodes I have probably enjoyed more than I have the first two episodes. Mm-hmm. I will say I have enjoyed the, the or first three episodes, latest episodes far more than I did number three. Mm-hmm. I'm still not ready to forgive you know, Marvel Studios for episode number three because because Loki is is starting to get his swagger back, starting yes. to get steaming back. But in many regards, he's still a drunken doofus. He's just not drunk. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and if you're seeing him transition into a better Loki, a a more anti-hero Loki than a villain Loki, I get that. That's an emotional journey I can under I can get behind, uh, especially if it just if it keeps him in the MCU, right? But this is still this is still not the Loki that we have known. He is right. still not the playing mental chess three moves ahead of you. He right. is flying seat of his pants, and he has absolutely no idea what he's doing. Right. Yeah. I do not like that about Loki. I no, never no. like that. So, well, unfortunately, guys, I got to say it's time to wrap it up. Uh, thank you again to Mr. Hammond. Um, I know we called him Nicholas throughout the issue, but this is where res- my respect for Mr. Hammond comes comes out. Thank you again, Mr. Hammond, for joining us. Uh, hopefully one day I will not hopefully I, I will get to see you in person uh, when you come to Disney Orlando. Well, Disney World, uh, and I look forward to that moment. Go buy a Matura or something. No, I. If we meet at, at Epcot, I will. I will. If he wants to drink, I'll buy him a drink. There you go. So, um, on that note, from all of us to all of you, Thursday, if you would please. All wrapped up here, sir. Will there be anything else? No. Let's just go thwip and swing out of here. <laughs>
The world has gotten even stranger than you already know. At this point, I doubt anything would surprise me. Ten bucks says you're wrong. 